Imagine, if you will, well, imagine, if you will, a hypothetical, and I truly mean hypothetical, candidate running for high civic office. This candidate has massive sums of money at his disposal, the best administrative staff money can buy, enthusiastic volunteers calling and door knocking. Imagine this candidate at a campaign rally in front of thousands of cheering supporters. And the candidate then says, I want to thank you for your support. We are running a great campaign, and I just want you to know that we are going to lose. <laughs> We're going to lose badly. I'm going to go to jail. You know, people are going to hate you. Just imagine that. It's that something like that happens with Jesus and his disciples in today's gospel text. Somehow Jesus and his disciples are near Caesarea Philippi, which was an imperial city in far northern Palestine. It's in the modern day Golan Heights. And if you've ever been to Palestine, the Holy Land, it is really a beautiful place. You have a spring there, you have the cave. It's, it's, I was there on a rainy day in, in January, but the weather is usually pretty mild around there. It can get a little chilly, but it's, it's, usually, it's usually nice. So Jesus and his disciples are there near Caesarea Philippi. They just came north from Bethsaida, which is on the Sea of Galilee. Why Jesus is there doesn't seem clear at first. It's, it's not, not an insignificant trek from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi, you should know, this isn't just a Gentile city. It's an imperial city. It was built on the site of a former shrine to the Greek god Pan, who was a god of nature and fertility, and was named after the emperor and Herod Philip. So Jesus and his disciples are in a Gentile city, named after the Roman emperor who claimed to be a son of the gods, and a pseudo-Jewish ruler, who was dead. and the site itself was dedicated to pagan worship. Why would Jesus go to such a place? Consider the question that Jesus asks his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Peter hits it on the head, perhaps a little too square on the head for, G for Jesus, at least in Mark, because Jesus immediately says, be quiet. There's none of the blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that you get in Matthew. It's just... Shh, don't say anything. Our translation says that Peter says, you are the Messiah, but perhaps it should read, you are the anointed one. Who else was anointed in the Bible? Well, kings were anointed with oil as a sign that God had chosen them for kingship. In the Old Testament, when Samuel came to Bethlehem to anoint David with oil, he committed a politically subversive act. You might even call it treason. Saul certainly regarded it. King Saul certainly regarded it as treasonous. When Peter confesses Jesus to be the anointed one in the middle of an imperial city named after the emperor and devoted to pagan worship, it is likewise a treasonous act. 
Never mind that Jesus isn't a king like other kings. Jesus is a, is a king without an army. He's a king without land. He's a king without any of the traditional prerequisites for kingship, save his bloodline. But Mark doesn't pay much attention to that. When Peter confesses Jesus to be true king above every governor, tetrarch, and Caesar, Peter is saying there is a power above these powers that claim ultimacy in our lives. That's a statement that will get you killed. And indeed, this moment that Peter recognizes Jesus' true identity is the moment that Mark's gospel takes a dark, ominous turn. Jesus begins to explain what being God's anointed means. It doesn't mean popular acclamation. It doesn't mean victory over the corrupt temple system and the even more corrupt state. Being God's anointed means suffering. It means rejection. It means death. It also means resurrection, but Peter probably didn't hear that far before he began to rip into Jesus. Mark doesn't record Peter's words like Matthew does, but we can imagine what they were. You have no idea how this Messiah stuff works, do you, Jesus? See, here's how it goes. You defeat the enemies arrayed against us. You free your people like Moses did. You usher in a real, tangible, messianic age of justice and peace for Israel. You make it very clear that God is on Israel's side and that Israel's God is the only true God. That's how it works, Jesus. But that's not what being God's anointed means, not to Jesus. And Jesus condemns Peter's rebuke in the strongest possible terms. Get behind me, Satan. That should have been a wake-up call. You are so stuck in your human way of thinking that you can't see the bigger divine purpose at work. You see, for Jesus, before he will win, before he can win over the powers that cause all misery, destruction, and death in the world, he first has to lose. He has to go to the cross. He has to submit to the will of his divine Father, whom he will beg to take this cup away from him. Before Jesus can conquer, he has to be conquered. He has to lose. And then, Jesus gives us the really, truly offensive and obnoxious thing about the gospel. This is the part that all the prosperity preachers on television can conveniently skip over. Jesus expects us to share in his suffering as part of the Christian life. He expects us to pick up our own cross and follow him. This isn't to be interpreted as masochistic or as sanctioning oppression or as undermining efforts for liberation, healing, or wholeness. To the contrary, suffering in the Christian life has a cause, a point, and an end. Its cause is all the trials we go through as part of the Christian life and living for God and for neighbor. We're just going to go through suffering as part of living the Christian life. Its point is to conform us in the nature, in the image and character of Christ. And its end is in Christ himself who suffered as a ransom for many. To the outside world, we will look like losers. 
Who, after all, would pour themselves out for God and their neighbor in this way, without any apparent reward on this side of glory? Who would willingly follow a Messiah who to all outward appearances looked like a failure? Luther felt so strongly about this that following his theological hero, St. Augustine, he asserted that faith in Jesus Christ is impossible by our own powers. I believe, Luther wrote in his explanation to the third article of the Creed, that by my own understanding or strength, I cannot believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But instead, the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, made me holy, and kept me in the true faith, just as he calls, gathers, enlightens, and makes holy the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one common true faith. Indeed, the whole Gospel of Mark is about Jesus discipling his disciples who do not get it, who fail over and over again. The faith of the disciples, the faith of the church, is only comprehensible in a post-Easter context, after the resurrection and the unleashing of the Holy Spirit on the world. Jesus does give a a wondrous gift to Peter, James, and John in revealing the fullness of God's kingdom on that mountaintop. But that vision is incomprehensible. It's empty until after Jesus suffers, dies, and is raised. It is only understandable in the context of Jesus' death and resurrection. The foretaste of victory is empty without the reality of the cross. The ultimate victory of Christ means nothing without his defeat. That's a paradox. And that's one we have to live with as Lutheran Christians. We live with the cross as a sign of both defeat and victory at the same time. So if Jesus had to lose in order to win over all the forces which keep us from God, why should we fear looking like losers to a world that has no idea what real power and victory look like? When we are emboldened by the Spirit to carry our cross and to live for God and our neighbors, we will discover what victory through the cross looks like. What Paul means when he says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. To the outside world, we may look like losers. But through Christ's victory alone, we too have won. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, help us to let go of anything that keeps us from carrying our cross. Continue to disciple us as you did your own disciples. Continue to embolden us to follow you by sending the Spirit to guide us. With the Father and that same Spirit, you live and reign now and forever. Amen.